0: You know, Pastor Andrew is on vacation until this week and will be with us again this next Sunday. Looking forward to having him and his family back. I know you've been praying that this would be a relaxing time for them to enjoy each other's company and the so Lord is their way. Uh, Pastor John is also not with us this morning. He's preaching at. Uh Uh, church uh, that's a good friend of ours, Jim Masters in Cottonwood at Cottonwood Bible Church. So he's standing in for Jim while Jim is away. And so the same Psalm Psalm 32 message that Pastor John brought to you just a few weeks ago, he's now bringing to the saints at uh, Cottonwood Bible Church, even as we speak. So pray for him in our time together this morning also. Uh, I also just got back from a little bit of time away. My wife and I got some good advice early on in our marriage. We were told every year for your anniversary, uh, the the temptation is going to be to try to get a gift that somehow, a gift for each other, happy anniversary gift that would somehow express your love. This becomes increasingly difficult over the years, not just because you love one another more by each year, but also because you kind of run out of things to give that are very meaningful, um, and it starts becoming a a more expensive practice And so, the the advice that we received was each year on your anniversary, go away for a couple of days together, spend the money instead of on gifts on just some time away together. So you can take that or leave it, but uh, we did that this last week, celebrated our 17-year anniversary, drove over to New Mexico for a couple of days there, and uh, if, if you know anything about driving across the 40 to New Mexico or in New Mexico, you know that this was not all bliss because I-40 in New Mexico is characterized by something that I like to refer to as endless construction. (laughs) And they constantly have you merging to one lane. Those of you who have driven it are familiar with this. You're like, are we seriously merging to one lane again? Like, can we just work on one part of the freeway at a time? Do we have to merge back to one lane like every three miles? endlessly, over and over again. The reason for this is because most of the bridges on the I-40 in New Mexico were built in 1970, the original construction of the 40 over the top of Route 66, and they haven't really been repaired or replaced in 51 years, and so now it's kind of a state of emergency. Uh, But it is infuriating as you're kind of driving through New Mexico, what you thought would take this amount of time takes this, uh, and apparently they've had major problems with road rage, maybe because of this, Um, and that is evidenced by the fact that there's constantly signs informing you of helpful things like, be courteous during merging. (laughs) Or another helpful sign, be courteous, take turns. My wife said, that guy in the Mustang did not buy a Mustang to take turns. Or the negative threat, you know, they try the negative threat to get people to change. Traffic finds double in construction zones. Ooh. I can tell you that didn't stop most of the people driving near us. They didn't seem to be bothered by that. Yeah, they can try all they want, but people don't change. They can put up all the signs they want, but they don't have the power to change people's behavior. And it begs the question that I was thinking as we were driving... How do people change? What is it that makes people change? I mean, you think we've, we would have this dialed in by now. They'd like have better signs. That would actually help. My wife actually suggested something helpful, is put all that billboard money into getting the roads finished faster. <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. Maybe you've wondered about this yourself though. You have uh, friends, family members, and you wonder, How can I help them change? And I see this need in their life to change in some significant way, and yet I feel powerless to help them change. Uh, Your spouse maybe, What, what will make my spouse change? My young kids, what will make them change? My grown kids, how do I help them change? Your own struggle in your life, how? in the world am I supposed to change? How do people change? Have you thought about this? Wouldn't it be great if God gave us a passage in the Bible that would explain things like this to us and help us to know better how people change? Well, lo and behold, you're in 2 Corinthians 3 this morning you know, this is, this is a letter from Paul to Corinth. Uh, Paul helped plant the church in Corinth, and he's now writing a letter back to them. He's heard previously that there was some question in Corinth about his authenticity as a minister, whether he should be trusted, and people there have been questioning his authority. And so in chapter 3, Paul is defending himself and his ministry by pointing to the fact that people were both changed and saved saved and changed under his ministry. And as he does that, what we're going to do is kind of walk through this and extract from this passage uh, the picture that he gives us about how believers grow spiritually. And I wonder if 2 Corinthians 3 may have some main idea that makes the difference between a stagnant Christian life and a thriving one. I wonder if there's a repeated word, maybe, that we might notice that would highlight for us the difference between a vibrant walk with Jesus Christ, a, a walk where their spiritual growth taking place, in contrast with a religious hypocrite. I wonder, I wonder if there's some clue in the main emphasis of this passage, standing out as though it were repeated over and over again, some clue as to how we as Christians grow, how we change. Do you ever feel like sometimes as you're reading the Bible, sometimes the emphasis of the passage is so obvious, it's like a bell going off? Let's read 2 Corinthians 3, verses 7 through 18 this morning and see if anything jumps out at us. And then we'll walk back through this passage, and it may not make a, a load of crystal clear sense the first time through, but that's why we're going to walk back through it again. But let's just see what maybe the emphasis is here as we read, see if you can pick it up. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Glory? Now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we, all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now anybody catch anything repeated in that passage <laughs> that stand out to you at all? Sometimes it's hard it's easy to miss. We pick up here in verse 7 where Paul is contrasting the Old Testament believers' way of life, how they lived with the New Testament believers' way of life. And in the Old Testament, it was all about obeying the law. In the New Testament, we have the Spirit. And he's going to discuss now how that changes everything about how we change everything about us. We have to follow with Paul on a little bit of a rabbit trail here. Verse 7, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. So here's contrasting the two, referring to the law as the ministry of death, the ministry of condemnation, referring to the New Testament, the New Covenant as the ministry of righteousness. One had glory, one has more glory. And he calls the law the ministry of death, the ministry of condemnation. It's interesting. What makes the law the ministry of death? How does the law bring death and condemnation? I mean, hypothetically, the law could give people eternal life if they kept it perfectly. But you have to keep it perfectly Your obedience cannot fail at any point whatsoever, James 2.10. And perfect obedience includes not just outward actions, behavior, but also inward attitude, the inward attitudes that those behaviors come from. I mean, look at Jesus' teachings on the Sermon on the Mount in particular. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. And everyone in the crowd thinks, yep, i doing good. I haven't committed adultery. And he says, but I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman with lust in his heart has committed adultery. Everyone's guilty. No one has obeyed the law. Everyone has failed. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Nobody except Jesus has ever kept the law perfectly. So while hypothetically, if you lived perfectly, perfectly according to the law, you would be perfectly holy and righteous, and you wouldn't be condemned. The problem is, that's impossible for all of us, because we already have been born with a sin nature. The law, therefore, in actuality, cannot save anyone, never has because of our sinful nature. This is so important that Galatians 2 says it over and over and over again. Romans 8, 7 says, apart from God working in you, your mind does not submit to God's God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So, even if you tried, you cannot submit to God's law. Because of all of this, all the law can do for you is show you your endless failures to live according to God's will for your life and thus condemn you to death. That's why Paul calls it the ministry of death, the ministry of condemnation. You're probably familiar with Pilgrim's Progress. It's probably uh, one of the most beloved books in Christian history. And of course, Christian's friend Faithful tells of an encounter he had when he realizes someone is coming up behind him and this man following Faithful runs up behind him and before Faithful has an opportunity to do or say anything, this man punches him in the face and knocks him out cold. Faithful comes to laying on the ground looking up at this man who knocked him out, standing over him, looking down. And Faithful starts to get up, starts to try to talk to the man, and immediately, without hesitation, the man punches him in the face again, and he's out cold. And he says, Faithful says, I lay at his foot as dead as before, so that when I came to myself again, I cried for mercy. But he said, I know not how to show mercy. And with that, he knocked me down again. He had doubtless made an end of me. he discovers later that man was Moses. The picture there, the law can teach us what is right and good, but it has no power to help us to do what is right and good. The law can show us where we fail, where we fall short, but the law has no power to forgive us or to cleanse our sin. The rules of the Bible can only judge and condemn us. They only can knock us down and leave us bruised and battered. And our cries for mercy are met with threats of death for failure. See, we need something greater than the law. We need something greater than just rules if we're to find the help we need. And we need someone greater than Moses. So the law served... And serves a purpose. But that purpose is not for salvation. It never was. It's it's common sometimes to hear people say, like, well, in the old testament, you know, people were saved by keeping the law, and then Jesus came and now we're saved by faith. The problem with that is it's not true. That's like the opposite of what the Bible actually says. That's and that's kind of a big problem. Paul's whole point in Romans 4 is that Abraham was saved by faith before the law was even written, right? He quotes Genesis fifteen six: Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul goes on in Romans 4 to talk about David, how he was saved by having his sin forgiven, not by keeping the law. And David actually lived under the law. So when the New Testament states clearly four times that the New Testament believer, Christians, are not under the law, Romans 6.14, Romans 6.15, Galatians 5.18, 1 Corinthians 9.20. Christians are not under the law. That does not mean Christians are not under the law as a way of salvation because no one was ever under the law as a way of salvation. So in what was it, that? in what way is it then that we are not under the law? Well, we can be certain that we're not under the law Being under the law never meant a means of salvation, rather always under it as a way of life for the Old Testament believers. They lived out their life and their relationship with God under the law, according to the rules that God had given them. This is how they sought to grow. Alva McLean says it this way, let us now follow the argument to its logical conclusion then. The change from the age of the law to the age of grace does not mean that formerly sinners were saved by deeds of the law, whereas today they're saved by grace. We've already seen men could not be saved by the law in any age, but it does then mean that God's people in the former age were under the law as a rule of life, whereas today they are not under the law As a rule of life. And this is because of what Jesus did. I mean, we know this, right? Ephesians 2.15 says, Jesus abolished the law of commandments. Or Colossians 2.14 says, the way Jesus forgives us is by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. See, as Faithful was retelling the story to Pilgrim, Pilgrim asks something along the lines of, well, then how did you ever get away from him? Faithful says, another man came along, one with, his, with nails in his hand, holes in his hand, and he bid Moses to leave me be and carry on with my journey. So back in 2 Corinthians 3, right, this is, this is what Paul means in verses 7 through 9 when he refers to the law as the ministry of death, the ministry of condemnation. This is what it means that we as Christians are no longer under the law. We don't have to live that way anymore. The, the law is not a rule of life for us anymore. Live according, living according to the law as a way of life only brings guilt and condemnation. So Paul calls it the ministry of death, the ministry of condemnation. We need to grasp all of that to help see what Paul is saying here. Look at verses 7 through 9. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Now, what in the world is he talking about here? Paul is alluding to an Old Testament story, right? If you're familiar with Exodus 34, you remember Moses comes down off the mountain with the two tablets of stone. God has carved with His own finger the law into tablets of stone, and Moses comes down the mountain as it were in Paul's story here with two things. Moses comes down the mountain with the tablets, the law, the rules, and he comes down with his face shining with the glory of God. Moses had been in the presence of God. His face is shining extremely bright with the reflected glory of God. It was so bright that the Israelites, like, they wouldn't even look at it. They asked Moses to cover his face with a veil. And that's going to be key in a minute here because Paul is going to use that as an illustration of the point that he's trying to make. But follow his train of thought here. He says, If the ministry of death had glory, verse 8, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. So he's saying, even that ministry came with glory. But this new ministry, this new way of life For followers of God, this new rule of life comes with far more glory. How much more glory? Look at verse 10. He says, indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. So the the new covenant has so much glory, it makes it look like the, the Mosaic covenant had zero glory. New flashlights these days are insanely bright. Now, when I was a kid, and I realize that that phrase makes me sound like I'm older than I probably am. When I was a kid, flashlights, you know, we had like mag lights, that was like the top of the line. Had like 5D batteries in it. And it weighed like 73 pounds. You could kill someone with a mag light. It's like a lethal weapon. And it's still like nothing compared to flashlights these days. I'm in the hardware store the other day, with my son we were picking something up and of course, as you're checking out, there's like the the impulse rack, you know, and they've got flashlights to test there. And you've all seen these new flashlights, you know, you've seen the video on Instagram, like whoa, in the dark, you see all the trees, you're like, it's like so bright, you can see like a million miles away. And so my son clicks this flashlight on in the like the test rack there and he's shining it around and people are going like whoa whoa and the lady behind the counter is like oh excuse me sir and they have a sign that says flashlights are very bright if testing only point at the floor and he's like lightsaber it was like insanely bright flashlights these days are crazy Put like nuclear power in there or something but we've all had the experience where you take any flashlight, right? You turn it on at night and you're like, man, come on. This is, I can see where I am going. Like, this is great. You take that same flashlight out at noon and you're like, is this thing on? Because there is a light that is so much brighter than any flashlight. you walking around in the daytime. It's like you can't even see where the flashlight is shining. It's like it's off. That's the idea here. Paul is like, the Old Testament ministry of the law, it was like a flashlight. Yeah, it was bright and glorious in the dark, but now the sun has risen, and it's like that thing doesn't have any glory at all anymore because the new covenant that we get to be a part of has so much more glory than it did. It just pales in comparison. So he says, indeed, in this case, verse 10, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. Verse 11, for if what was being brought to an end, that is, the old covenant, came with glory, much more will what is permanent, that is, the new covenant, have glory. So you and I are part of a covenant with God that is permanent and has far more glory. And Paul is explaining this so we will see how it is that we ought to live our lives now that we are not under the law in the darkness with dim glory, but now under God's grace in the daylight with loads of glory. It changes the way that we live our life as followers of God. And here's where he gets to that. Verse 12. Since we have such a hope, what hope? The hope he just talked about. The glory of the new covenant that God has promised us. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. So now you can see we're getting to us. This is the first time we've come up in this passage. He says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Again, what's he talking about? He's going back to Exodus 34 here again, right? Moses went up, got the law, Ten Commandments plus, and comes down with the tablets. He comes down. His face is shining with the glory of God. The people are afraid. Wrong kind of fear, right? The people are afraid. Cover your face, Moses and so he covers his face with a veil. I don't know what this thing was made out of, like blackout curtains or something, but it says Moses covers his face with a veil so that they couldn't see the glory of the Lord shining off of his face. Now, Paul uses that story as an illustration. They got the law without the glory. They got the rules, the to-do list, without the manifest character of God that was meant to motivate them to keep the law. It says Moses would put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. What's being brought to an end? The law. It was temporary. Paul had just said in verse 11 that the new covenant we live in is permanent. This word outcome, that they might not gaze at the outcome. It's the Greek word telos. It's where we get our word Telescope. Right? it's You look into it, and I'm here, but I can see all the way out there at the end, the, the telos. The Greek word has this idea of it being the outcome, the goal, the, the end that you're aiming for, the, the telos. And that's this word here. The Israelites couldn't gaze at the, the outcome of what was being brought to an end. What was the goal? What was the intended outcome? The glory of God. And they couldn't see it. The law and the glory were meant to go together. And they were meant to put the glory of God on display in their lives. As motivated by God's glory, they live according to the law, and they put the glory of the Lord on display in the way that they live. But they got the rules without getting the motivation to do them. Or as Paul is alluding to in this passage, they got the law, they got the task list without the heart change. He says that right here, verse 14. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, oh no, it continues. It wasn't just in Exodus 34. It continues to this day when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. That's interesting because Moses died a long time ago. Where's the veil? He says, because only through Christ is it taken away. Oh, you see where we're going with this? Verse 15, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Over their hearts. Paul is so swift in turning this illustration for you that you almost don't notice it happen. Or maybe you could say it's such a confusing illustration because the story is not familiar to us. But notice the way the veil was over Moses' face, now it's over their hearts. Paul is helping you see this wasn't a law problem this wasn't a Moses problem. This was a heart problem. The veil lies over their hearts. They didn't want to see the glory of God. People don't want to see the glory of God. They are afraid they don't want to see the glory of God and as the as a result they can't understand the purpose for which the law was given or the reason for which we have the scriptures 1 Corinthians 2:10 through 14 Paul is going to say the same thing he says these things God has revealed to us through the spirit And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Verse 14 the natural person, the person without the Spirit of God, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they are foolishness to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Hear that again. The natural person is not able to understand them. Because without the Spirit of God, they cannot understand them. It's like God is broadcasting in FM, but you're driving in your 1967 Ford pickup truck that only has an AM receiver. God's broadcasting on FM, you only have an AM receiver. So how do you get... FM receivers, you can hear what God is saying, or to get back to Paul's illustration, how do I remove the veil so that I can see God's glory and be changed by it? Verse 16, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Turns to the Lord, this phrase in Exodus 34, when Moses came down off the mountain with the law and the glory, Exodus 34, 30 says, Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses. Behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. They turned away from the glory of God. They turned away from the Lord. Wrong kind of fear. The implication, just, just give us the law, Moses. Just just give us the rules. Just tell us what God said to do. They turned away from the Lord even as they sought to keep the law. And so they had neither the motivation to keep it nor the means by which to understand what it was for. Paul will address this very thing. He says, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed He's gonna point again to that after he finishes talking about how people grew under his ministry. He's gonna talk in 2 Corinthians 4 about how people got saved in the same way, right? 2 Corinthians 4, you can look at it right there. Look at verse 3, even if our gospel is veiled, so you preach the gospel and it's veiled, there's that word again, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Get this. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, that's creation, has shown in our hearts to give, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So how do you get saved according to this passage? Well, The gospel is preached to you, and it is veiled. You cannot see it. It's veiled, and you are perishing because the God of this world, that is Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light. The the glory of God cannot get through. The light of the gospel cannot get through until God gives shines in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now that's how you get saved. What Paul is saying in the chapter before this is, that's how you grow spiritually too. When the light of the knowledge of the glory of God shines and the Holy Spirit has removed the veil so you can see the glory and be changed by it. That's why he says in verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom, freedom to see, freedom to obey, freedom to to live the kind of life I'm meant to live. And here it is. Here is the key verse in all of this, verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. He says, and we all. It's not just Moses anymore. Moses isn't the only one seeing the glory of God. He says, and we all. No one stands between God and the Christian anymore. We all with unveiled face. The veil has been removed. We've been turned because we have turned to the Lord with the right kind of fear and we have received the Holy Spirit. God has shown the light of the gospel into our hearts and enlightened the eyes of our hearts to allow us to see. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord. And this is where we get down to it, isn't it? The Bible isn't just a book of rules to us anymore. It's not just a law that condemns us. It's not just something that we read and realize how guilty we are. Now we look in the scripture and we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. McLean says, the written word is the divinely authorized portrait of the Lord Christ Jesus. It's like the word of God allows us to see the glory of God in the portrait that it paints of Jesus Christ. We see the glory of God most clearly in the portrait that God's Word paints of who Jesus is. He says, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. That's the key for which we came to this passage. How how can I change? How are we changed? How do I help other people change? How can they be transformed? By beholding the glory of the Lord with an unveiled face by seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus, in the pages of Scripture, which can only happen when the Holy Spirit has opened the eyes of our hearts to see Him there. This is how we change. The Word of God serves as a mirror, yes, to help us see ourselves rightly, right? You get this, James 1, 23 and 24, the Word of God is a mirror to show us ourselves clearly, but this looking at ourselves in the mirror of God's Word can't be separated from a look into the same mirror to behold the glory of the Lord. Tozer said, "Faith is the gaze of the soul upon a saving God." You know when you look out a window at night and it's dark outside, and so what do you see when you look at the window? You just see your own reflection. You see you looking back at you. The Word of God is like a window. If you look at it rightly it functions as a mirror you can see yourself and you can make corrections but if there's no light outside you can only see yourself the holy spirit is the sun rising god shines the light of his glory into your heart and the light shines on jesus christ standing outside the window and now you see not just your reflection in the, in the window, not just yourself in the Word of God. Now you see through the Word and you see Jesus Christ himself. If you see only you, you can't change. You can see what needs to be changed. You can change in some external kind of hypocritical way, but you won't have a clear p- picture of what to change into in the first place. If you only see the rules, you won't have the motivating influence of the glory of God to enable you to keep them by the power of the Spirit. That's why Paul says, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. What image? The image of God in the face of Christ Jesus. We're transformed from one degree of glory to another. We look to Him, and over time, the more we behold Him, the more we become like Him. And he says, this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We become like what we behold. How do we think about this practically then? If you spend all your time just looking at yourself, as you read your Bible, you look at your circumstances and the other lesser things of this world, you will become like what you behold. You know, every Sunday morning at 9 a.m., I don't know if it's because I set that time or because that's just kind of like the Apple official time, like they think Sunday morning is a good time to remind me. How much time I spent on my iPhone this week you get that notification too? It's like the screen time reminder. You spent an approximate 4 hours and 23 minutes on your phone each day this week. Like, oh man. I get that on my way to church every morning. Like, so that's how my week went. A lot of screen time. Or it's like, your screen time is up 27%. Oh, great. It kind of gives you this this readout of what you've been looking at, right? You can, you can even tap on it and it shows you what the, how much time you spent in different apps. So, so what are you beholding? What would that app tell you? If that app could track everything you look at all day, not just on your phone, what would it say about what you're beholding? What are you looking at? Because when the Spirit of the Lord opens the eyes of our hearts so that we can now behold the glory of God, we can look at Him in the pages of Scripture, and become like Him. We can see the portrait of Christ in our fellowship with one another so much as it's defined by Scripture, and we can behold the glory of God in our fellowship and become like Him. Never more clearly do we see a perfect picture of all of God's attributes than we do at the cross The cross is, Piper says, the cross is the apex of the glory of God. It's the pinnacle of the mountain, right? If if the glory of God is Mount Everest, the gospel, the cross is the peak. It's the top. It's the most significant display of the glory of God. Jonathan Edwards said it this way, This distinguishing glory of the divine being has its brightest appearance and manifestation in the things proposed and exhibited to us in the gospel. Why? Because it's in the gospel that we see all of God's myriad of attributes on display. We see perfect justice and wrath against sin. And we see forgiving grace and mercy We see terrible wrath, we see infinite love. We see the humility of Jesus Christ in His death, and we see the power of Jesus Christ in His resurrection. See, in the gospel, at the cross, we see the clearest picture, the greatest display of the glory of God, and that's why the Christian life ought to be a constant return to the gospel. As we behold the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus, we are transformed, changed, grown spiritually. And it is this looking at the gospel, looking at the word of God, looking at the the face of Jesus, as it were, that changes us, motivates us, awakens our sleepy spirituality. We receive from beholding his glory and grace, we receive not only the motivation to change, but the ability to change. This is why, I don't know if you've thought about this, um, and if this comes across as confusing to you, I would recommend to you the the Canyon Bible Church Book of the Month is um, Because He Loves Me by Elise Fitzpatrick. And there is a great section in there. The subtitle of the section is The Indicatives and the Imperatives. And if you're familiar with the concept of the indicatives and the imperatives in Scripture, the idea is indicatives are statements about who God is and what He's done for us. And the imperatives are the commands, what God is calling us to do. And the point regarding the relationship between the indicatives, what God has done, and the imperatives, what we are called to do, is that we are never given imperatives outside the context of the indicatives. For example, before you get the commands of Colossians 4, 5, and 6, you get the gospel in 1, 2, and 3, the character of Christ. Romans, maybe one of the best examples, right? It's not that you get to Romans 12:1 that you start getting commands about how to live in the will of God. Well, what are the first 11 chapters about? You guessed it. The character of God in the gospel. Paul spends 11 chapters unpacking what God has done for us, how he's manifest his character in the gospel before he gets to chapter 12 and says, "Therefore, beloved." by the mercies of God that I just spent 11 chapters telling you about, present your body as a living sacrifice. Philippians, the call to consider others is more important than yourself, comes with the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus who humbled himself from heaven to earth and from life to death for us. Practically the whole point of Philippians is Jesus humbled himself to serve you. You humble yourself to serve others. There's not a command apart from the context of God's grace to you. There's not an imperative without the context of the indicative. We looked recently at Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8, where we're urged to defer to the weaker brother. Why? Because this is someone f- for whom Christ died. No command without the context of the gospel. Even, you could, you could say, oh, well, what about the Ten Commandments? I mean, that's just like flat-out rules, right? Well, unless you start in the verses right before it where he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, who brought you out of slavery, and then gives the Ten Commandments which, if you stop in verse 17, are also just a list of commands. But if you continue just past verse 17 through to verse 24, you find God giving instructions for what to do when you fail to keep the commands. Build an altar of earth. Why earth? Because anybody has that. No steps. Why no steps? So everyone can get to the altar. Overabundant grace, even in the context of the 10 Commandments. I mean, Proverbs, right? It's just like a huge list of like, here's how to do this, here's how to do that. It's just kind of like practical wisdom, right? Well, as we looked at a few weeks ago, Proverbs begins with the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. You understand rightly who God is and your relationship to Him first before you try to live out any of the practical elements of the Proverbs. See, when God hands you a package of commands, it is always wrapped in the sparkling wrapping paper of His glory and grace. Come into my office with me. I will place you over here on the shelf and you watch as my next counseling session comes in. It's a marriage counseling session and they come in and sit down, we close the door. You watch as the husband confesses that he has committed adultery. Now they're trying to put the pieces back together. The wife confesses that she finds herself just unable to forgive him. So I say, well, stop committing adultery. In fact, let me take you to all the passages in the Bible where where it says adultery is sin. And then I turn to the wife and I say, you need to forgive your husband. Seriously. Don't you know unforgiveness is sin? And then I'm going to take you to all of the passages in Scripture that show where you're commanded to forgive. Forgive. Guess what? All I have done is show them that they're guilty. You committed adultery, you shouldn't have. You won't forgive, you need to. Guilty, guilty. I haven't helped anybody. I haven't given them the motivation to be able to get out there and change and the Bible gives us that. I'm just Moses knocking people down. That doesn't help them. What does he need? He needs to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He needs to see how precious God's faithfulness to him really is. He needs to see the glory of the gospel and realize how his marriage with this woman is a picture of the greatest reality in all of existence. He needs to see the grace of God to forgive him for his sin and restore him to his loving Heavenly Father. And he needs to allow the glory of God in all of those things to motivate him to be faithful to his wife going forward. What does she need? She needs to behold the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus if she's ever going to forgive her husband. She needs to stand in fearful awe of a Savior who has graciously forgiven her 10,000 times, 10,000 And her heart will yearn for that kind of beautiful forgiveness in her own life as she beholds the glory of God in his forgiveness towards her. And she will be transformed on the inside and want to forgive her husband. Even though the struggle is real, her desires are changed by the glory of God. And he will want to be faithful to his, li- his wife. Even though the struggle is real, his desires are being changed from one degree of glory to another as he sees the beauty of Jesus Christ. What does this mean for us when we think about how to help people change? We need to stop only telling people what to do. I mean, I'm pretty confident when that husband and wife came into my office, I just told them things they already knew. Adultery is sin. Unforgiveness is sin. And most of the Christians in your circle of influence are going to already know whatever rules you're going to give them. They need more than that. And so our kids need more than just rules to follow. They need to see the glory of God's character in our parenting. They need to see his his graciousness, his forgiveness, his kindness, his love, his justice, his righteousness. Your spouse needs more than just a reminder of the law when they sin against you. They don't just need you to tell them how bad it was. They're already pretty clear on that, actually. They need to see the grace of God in your unflinching forgiveness to them when they don't deserve it. Because that's how God forgives us your unbelieving coworkers need more than just you telling them to stop using God's name in vain or critiquing their morals they need to see the glory of God they need to see his character manifest in your compassionate love for them if you're a leader in this church your small group your discipleship group your whatever area of influence you've been given leadership over they need to see more than just an intellectual analysis of a Bible text resulting in a list of ways for us to go out and do better. They need to see how the grace of God in the gospel motivates them to live differently. If you serve in children's ministry, and I was just, I ran into the guy who's teaching in children's ministry this morning, I said, what's the lesson? He said, the millennial kingdom. I'm thinking, I'm imagining him teaching the millennial kingdom to the children said, tell me about it. And he's like, well, I'm really just going to preach the gospel to them. That's really what they need. And I'm going to end with the glory of the millennial kingdom for those who believe the gospel. So if you serve in children's ministry, don't just tell kids the moral stories of the Bible and tell them, trust God like Abraham, be faithful like Joseph, obey mommy and daddy like Jesus. Show them the exciting God behind the Bible stories so that they will come to know him and actually want to trust God, be faithful, and obey mommy and daddy because they're being transformed on the inside by the glory of God, the power of the Holy Spirit. If you preach or teach God's word in any capacity, don't simply data dump on people from the text telling them how to go out, try harder, do better, as John says, get on the performance pony. Show them from the text how the glory of God and the gospel changes their hearts to be more like him. If we want to help people change, we have to stop running around just punching people like Moses in the face with the rules and start running around like Jesus giving ourselves to show them grace, peace, comfort, kindness, goodness. Overwhelm them with the character of God. Let them see Him through you. You've heard this before. If you want to build a ship, Don't drum up men to gather wood, divide the work, and give orders. Instead, teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. You want to change? How about you? You want to grow? How do I change? How do I grow? I have to understand how people change. Not simply telling people what to do, though there's a place for that but pointing them to the glory of God so that they will yearn for His character in their own lives. Only that will transform their hearts on the inside and motivate them to live differently. Same thing is true for me. When I come to the Bible each day and I'm reading the Bible, I'm not just looking for rules to obey as though I'm creating some endless list of tasks I have to do to be a faithful Christian. I'm coming to the Bible looking for the character of God to change my heart and transform me. When we come to church on a Sunday morning, we're not just coming to be given more things to do. Here's some stuff for you to do. Here's some stuff for you to do. There's some things for you to do and things to do for everybody. Everyone gets things to do. We come to the fellowship. We come to the gathering because we need to see the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. And we see it most clearly in the gospel. And that's why we rehearse the gospel every single Sunday. It never gets old. I love Jared Wilson on his uh, book to pastors. He's talking about preaching and how some pastors feel um, feel like they're being boring, just preaching the gospel every Sunday. and And he says, um, "Pastor, you are boring. Your creativity is boring. Your illustrations are boring. Your preaching is boring. All of your great ideas are boring. The gospel will never be boring." The gospel is the clearest display of the glory of God and it calls people out of the darkness and it transforms the hearts of believers. So we need to come to church and Bible study and discipleship groups and any fellowship looking for the character of God, looking to behold His glory. Even when we come to the commands of the Bible and the commands of the Bible have a place in the life of a believer, but we need to see them in the context of God's grace. It's even good for us to be convicted when the rules of Scripture condemn our behaviors and attitudes. Why is that good? Because like Paul in Romans 7, on this very topic of the believer's relationship to the law, he expresses frustration with his constant sinfulness. He's like, every time I come to the law, I realize I'm just even worse than I thought I am. I'm so sinful. And he goes on and on of uh, this battle happening within him. His ultimate conclusion, Romans seven twenty four. wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So it's good. When the Bible confronts our sin, it's good when a brother or sister confronts our sin. We need to see that we are sinful. But don't stop there. Let it drive us back to the glory of Christ in His forgiveness extended to us. So, it's good for us to see our violation of the rules of Scripture and to be convicted so long as that conviction comes full circle to the glory of the grace of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Whether you are in New Mexico or here in Arizona, law enforcement has no ability to make people change. All they can do is put up signs telling people to change, be courteous. Take turns. Traffic fines double in construction zones. They can also penalize people when they do not obey the law, but they still have no power to make people change. Brothers and sisters, we are not law enforcement. Well, actually, some of you are law enforcement, a couple of you. But as Christians, we are not law enforcement. We are not law enforcers. We have more than simply laws and rules to point to. We have been given the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to point to and behold the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus as a transforming and motivating principle to actually change us and to actually help us change others. Lord, we need your help. Because as we've seen this morning, God, change is not something that we can do on our own. As soon as we start to think about how to change, we run the risk of putting the focus on ourselves and what we do. But Father, as we've seen from Paul this morning in 2 Corinthians 3, we need to behold the glory of God In the face of Christ Jesus, we need to come to your word, come to church and hear your word preached, come to fellowship with other believers and hear your word discussed and your character lived out, and we need to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ because we don't just need a list of things to do, we need to be changed, Lord. We are broken on the inside. We just confess to you, Father, that apart from your grace in our lives, we are powerless to change ourselves. And so we ask that each day as we come to your word, each week as we come to the gathering, Lord, use this time to put your glory on display, especially through the gospel, that we would love it and cherish it and see in it the apex of your glory displayed for us. And as we see it, Lord, transform us. Let us not walk out of here on Sundays thinking of things to do. Let us walk out of here on Sundays thinking of how great you are, being changed on the inside and then going out as people who just do things differently because we're a different kind of person. Lord, may your glory captivate us more than every lesser glory in the world. And may every lesser glory in this world simply point us back to your glory. Lord, we want to see you. We ask that you'd help us open the eyes of our hearts that we might behold wondrous things from your word. And transform us from one degree of glory to another into the image of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.